Happy Monday. If you missed it yesterday, we did our 15 and 60 mailbag on the Western Conference. That was a a really fun one. Got some great questions there, some good reactions to that one as well. So definitely give that a listen. John Hollinger and I recorded Hollinger Duncan. Today, we talked about the Kenny Atkinson thing. We talked about how front offices try to deal with the media, especially when they think the media is uh, reporting things unfairly. We talked about what's going to keep the coaching staffs of uh, some of the best teams in the NBA up during the playoffs. And then, of course, we eliminated some teams from the playoffs and I uh, gave a little postmortem on their season. So that was fun. And let's uh, get started here. Talk a little bit about. Let's do some news first, actually. That's probably the, the place to start here. And obviously, the biggest is the coronavirus. And the news came out today that Santa Clara County, which is not obviously an NBA team there, but that is in the Bay Area, it's where San Jose is. They have banned gatherings of over 1,000 people uh, as of Monday night, and that will include San Jose Sharks games. And so you'd have to imagine that at a minimum, San Francisco won't be far behind them. It seems probable at the moment, and we'll have to see what the other potential ways around that are, you know, the idea of playing games without fans you know there would still be a lot of people there because you need to put on the television broadcast and have all the support staff for the players and everything else like that and that presumably could be a part of the the call there's a league call that's going on on Wednesday to discuss further action and I mean when you consider these kinds of things I mean of course you could also see what's going on in Italy where they're going to have to come up with at least one branch maybe multiple branches of solutions here and, and one of the early things we saw was limiting limiting media access access temporarily you know like not not allowing media locker room access and we'll see what how how that affects things and then there's going to be some distance in the interview rooms and things like that but the real big question is like are they going to have the games if they have the games what is it going to look like yeah and i mean i my guess would be that by the time they have that call on wednesday at least in san francisco they won't have a choice that they will not be and the warriors play tomorrow night against the clippers and they play thursday night at home against the nets then they go on the road for some time. Their next home game after that isn't until March 25th. But I think we're going to reach an inflection point by Wednesday where the choice is either going to be play games without fans, play games somewhere other than in San Francisco, or just postpone the season entirely or postpone games entirely. And I don't think they can really postpone games effectively at this point in time. So I did a little Twitter poll. I've only got about 2,000 votes in it now, but... I asked fans whether they'd rather put, at least fans being my followers, which of course are not emblematic of all NBA fans, but when asked whether you'd rather the season be postponed or to play an empty arena, 75% of people saying uh, who have responded to this and are my followers obviously said they'd rather play in empty arenas, but that obviously has concerns as well for the safety of the traveling parties, the broadcasters uh, and uh, the players, the coaching staffs uh, as well, because if they're traveling, they still uh, could very easily come into contact with the virus. And obviously if any players were to get the virus, then you can't have them playing against other players. And that would be a a major concern and so at that point you really have no choice but to postpone things so it's uh i wouldn't want to be 
sitting in the NBA's offices right now trying to figure out what to do but it seems like regardless of what happens we're probably going to be looking at a reduction in revenue reduction for the of the cap of next year and I mean obviously I'm an NBA journalist here so I'm talking about the ramifications of the NBA there are far larger ramifications than that but I I since you're listening to this for my NBA analysis I'm going to limit my analysis to talking about what this means for the NBA there are plenty of other very capable journalists discussing what this means for the state and the country and the world right now I think so, yeah I, I think we could jump from that to Brooklyn and you talked about it a lot with John but we have to at least talk a little bit about the ouster the mutual parting of ways of Kenny Atkinson there's some great reporting from the athletic out uh Shams and I believe it's Alex Schiefer yeah. about the, the athletic.com slash cap space by the way yes very much so and really it's I mean, so it, it always is funny in these circumstances where it's like, well, Kyrie and KD didn't advocate for Atkins and Souster. However, it didn't seem like they were they didn't particularly wanted to play for him next year. So it's like they didn't have to say it. You know, that's sort of a circumstance. And I think Atkinson, the, one of the things I really liked about the piece was it got into the TikTok of how some of this happened and how Atkinson could see the dynamic shifting and went, well, if that's where it's going to go, then I don't want to be a part of it. And assuming that reporting is correct, kudos to him for seeing the writing on the wall getting out of it ahead of you know it's better to leave something before it becomes messier especially publicly and and i think that makes it makes his chances of getting an next job whenever that is not that he was gonna have a problem with it anyway he did a very good job in brooklyn it makes that an easier sales pitch that you didn't he didn't get caught up in it as much so i i wonder how the coaching carousel is going to work this year and my instinct right now is that the nets job eventually will be filled by somebody who is not currently head coaching an nba team Ty Lue, somebody you've mentioned, I think that's a very reasonable name. Um, and so that changes a couple of different things. But I also think if Kenny Atkinson wants a job this year, he will get a job this year. Yeah, and I talked uh, a little bit more about it. John gave his thoughts as well uh, on that pod. So I won't reiterate anything other than my usual in a lot of these coach firings, which is deserve ain't got nothing to do with it. Atlanta, we're going to talk about their game against Charlotte, which uh, turned into a crazy <laughs> double overtime game. Uh, the, the Despite your uh, poll question, the inevitable heat death of the universe did not come to pass before the end of Hawks Hornets today. Uh, but Clint Capella still going to be out another two weeks from a couple of days ago with that plantar fasciitis and especially given the fact that it's a chronic injury that it requires a lot of rest it would seem prudent at this point to shut him down for the season why give him a setback going into the offseason let him just fully rest i mean it's such a hard injury to kick once it started and and they it's not like they're in the desperately pulling information phase of this like they don't need to see Clint Capella in order to in, figure out how they're going to invest I mean I guess it could affect the extension negotiations with John Collins but outside of that I mean I don't think and especially considering where their season is going I don't think that there's that it, the the information they would glean from that especially if he's still recovering would be super valuable yeah Scalabissier also out another two weeks uh, with the knee injury that he sustained before he was traded to know what if any future he would have uh in atlanta another player who i think it's more important for his team to see is kavan looney he will miss another three weeks steve kerr was adamant that they are going to try and get him back get him into a rhythm before the season ends but with this hip soreness recall that he's had a couple of hip surgeries already one on each hip or earlier in his career that is not a good sign he, it has just been an absolute struggle since uh, he suffered that chest injury um 
due to the bowling ball shoulder of Kawhi Leonard back in the NBA Finals and just has not been able to get healthy, has had some slight moments of competence later on in the year. But I do think that the Warriors want to have some idea that he can contribute next year or he could very easily just be trade bait in the offseason along with one of the assets that they have or they just have to even if he's not traded they have to acknowledge that they can't necessarily count on him for next year and they may may need to fortify the center position when they wouldn't have otherwise yeah and they don't have a ton of tools to get better so you know the the Iguodala trade exception and the mid-level so if they have to use some of the mid-level let's say on a center then that that changes their resources for everything else another team that has an important return actually a series of them is the memphis grizzlies the grizzlies have justice winslow who has not played a second for them he is hopefully returning within the next week from his back issue jaron jackson jr is hopefully returning as well he's been dealing with left knee soreness and then it's a longer timeline for uh for brandon clark he has a quad strain and he's they say he's progressing well and is expected to return this season but the season is very different from this week so we'll have to see but memphis is in that fight for the eight seed out west and getting reinforcements back and also getting the chance to evaluate justice winslow's fit with all these players getting a chance to integrate him in the season i think that is i that is much preferable to having to wait until next season yeah i'm very interested to see how they defend and how he shoots the ball when he comes back and how they use him he, he operated with the ball in his hands a lot but uh, miami didn't have a john morant uh, so i i want to see what we get out of him and they've got tyus jones as well so how, how to use him will be an interesting challenge for taylor jenkins Carl Anthony Towns is going to miss. Oh wait! Before further... we move on, we oh, should yeah. talk about Jonte Porter. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I forgot about that. Yeah. So this was interesting. Porter, younger brother of Michael Porter, is extremely young. His first year at Missouri, but then suffered a torn ACL. Was attempting to rehab. Suffered another torn ACL, but entered the draft next last year. Nonetheless, was not drafted, and so he has been rehabbing. Apparently. It is approaching the point where he might be able to play again and some teams have been monitoring him according to Woj but Memphis signs him and what I really liked about it is Memphis had used up their full mid-level exception and they had the biennial but that and the minimum could only give him two years so you basically are got this year which is a punt and then you would have next year and then he goes into restricted free agency so what they decided to do with his agent mark barlstein which i thought was very smart is sign him now and then you give him a team option for next year so you're not beholden anything you can decline that team option if you want to make him a restricted free agent and then they could sign him for up to four additional years using the mid-level most likely because uh, they don't project to have cap space now uh, and get an idea of where he's at or you can just move on from him at that point if you don't want the roster spot or you can just hold on to him uh, at the minimum for next year as well if you want to exercise uh, the yeah and make him restricted the following year yeah so i thought it was good creativity from uh, the memphis front office and uh, his agent mark bartlestein now we can move to Minnesota where that fractured wrist of Carl Anthony Towns, it will leave him out at least two more weeks. They are pursuing a non-operative strategy for his recovery, although that always does kind of make you think that if that doesn't work, then there would be an operative strategy. But I know Towns really wants to get back to play with D'Angelo Russell. This is a one time where at least the flattened lottery odds should help do not pro- provide too much of an incentive to just shut him down uh and we'll see whether towns in fact can return i for one really want to see what it looks like with beasley herning gomez 
Russell and Towns all together. We may not get to see that. We may not get to see that in real basketball. Uh, again, I mean, we're, uh, by the way, everything we're talking about here assumes that the season is going to go on a, as normal. Obviously, that could change a whole host of things. But uh, so that that's not great for Minnesota. Um, let's take a quick break here and we can get to the rest of the news in a second. All right, Danny, what else we got here? Let's go to the walking wounded in San Antonio. DeJounte Murray suffered a calf strain during their loss to the Cavs and doesn't have a timetable. Uh, Lonnie Walker is dealing with a left shin contusion. We don't have a timeline yet on him, but Greg Popovich implied that it could be a while. It's apparently painful for him to walk. And LaMarcus Aldridge is doubtful for their game against the Mavericks. Yeah, and that's kind of too bad. Walker, you would like to have seen him play more in what's turning into a lost season now. For San Antonio, this injury to Aldridge was really the death knell for them. And especially considering the low bar to get in with the eighth seed, for them to not even be competitive for that is, of course, a massive disappointment. And it's really about development at this point. And so Murray and Walker, maybe two of their three most important prospects, going to miss some significant time here. It sounds like towards the end it is a bummer for San Antonio fans. For Toronto, Marcus Gasol made his return from a second left hamstring injury on Sunday, did not play in their victory over Utah, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Fred Van Vliet has yet to return, but he is shooting for Saturday with that shoulder injury most likely against his old coach Dwayne Casey and the Pistons also potentially a suitor for him in free agency this year for the Philadelphia 76ers we heard, we've heard that Joel Embiid could return this week and we have heard nothing on Ben Simmons dealing with that back issue yeah uh no analysis there other than uh that's bad um for Phoenix, DeAndre Ayton has uh, missed time since he suffered what looked like a pretty bad sprain in that game against Toronto last week, but he's actually been upgraded to questionable against the Blazers on Tuesday. And those aforementioned Blazers, Dwight James of NBC Sports Northwest, reporting that Jody Allen will sell the team, that she's not that into basketball. The Blazers are were projected to be worth $1.85 billion in the latest Forbes roundup. And that'll be interesting. I mean, we haven't seen an NBA team get sold in a while. And well, and the last one didn't work out super well for that team, <laughs> in our opinion. And but it, it that is a reminder. Well, of no, how... no, no. Well, uh, Joe Sy would would probably. Be oh, the, yeah, the that's most right. recent one. Actually, I mean, yeah, that because that option. I, I was thinking of it as yeah. that was after, but the or that was before because the option existed. But you're right, that was the most recent transfer. Um, but yeah, I mean, Fertitta is an is a useful example in terms of how it you know, one of the ways that it can go wrong. And I mean, I, I know Blazers fans appreciate how central Paul Allen was to everything that happened there in the Pacific Northwest and now currently is the only team in the Pacific Northwest. And so the hope is that the the next owner, whoever that may be, will will do will do will do similar things, but we can we cannot be sure of that. To go from the Pacific Northwest to the southeast of the country of Orlando, Evan Fournier has a sprained UCL and it could keep him out for an extended period of time. It seems like even without him the magic are destined to still make the playoffs just because nobody else is is really putting up a good fight in the east but it's going to be some tough basketball to watch in orlando for the remainder of the season yeah for for those who don't know the ucl ulnar collateral ligament that's your elbow yes uh Tyler Hero has resumed on-court workouts. He's not traveling with the team. Now he's got that, it was reported as a foot, then an ankle. But he's at least doing some stuff. So maybe, you know, he could get back on the floor within the next couple of weeks and potentially ramp back up for the playoffs. 
in Indiana, Malcolm Brogdon has a torn rectus femoris. That's basically like your hip flexor. It's one of the quad muscles, but it's the one on top that when you're going to raise your knee up, it flex your hip at a 90 degree angle. Uh, it's what does that. And so he is week to week with that. There's uh, some of the discussion of it'll be a pain tolerance thing. I, I don't really like that when a muscle injury is involved. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me because you need that muscle to actually move. I've had that injury as a, as a, so many, and is uh, it's not really pleasant. It's hard, like it's interesting because you can kind of there's a lot of things that you can do but then when you try to like really run fast that's when it, i mean it could be a different part of the muscle but when i had it i could jump just fine but when i tried to really like lift my leg up to run that's where it, and accelerate that's when i would really run into problems so you kind of need to do that if you're a nba basketball player and it's been so frustrating that we haven't really gotten to see the Pacers fully together. It has been a successful season for them in a lot of ways, and I think Nate McMillan's done a great job there. But getting the chance to evaluate it all, especially with potential of an Oladipo extension, all that type of stuff, it would have been, been great this year. Uh, the carousel that continued moving in the kind of low-end shooting guard movement is pretty interesting. So in, in well, we'll start it with Jordan McRae. So Denver cut Jordan McRae to sign Troy Daniels, who had been cut by the Lakers so that they could sign Dion Waiters. And it looked like Phoenix wanted Jordan McRae. And they it sounds like they put in a yeah. waiver claim on him. Well, well it, was, it was supposedly a buyout even uh, of McRae. Yeah. But uh, then it was like, well, you probably want to just claim him on waivers so you can get his early bird rights. Exactly. And he's making the minimum. So it's not like it's that big a financial commitment as long as that doesn't like push you into the tax or something like that. And so Phoenix wanted him, but Detroit had a stronger waiver claim and claimed him. Yeah. And he'll uh, certainly get some time with Luke Kennard still on the shelf there. And of course, Denver did sign the aforementioned Troy Daniels. I mean, I just don't think he's going to play at all, especially under a defensive focus coach like Mike Malone. But they did, in theory, their need is just a, a bomber. You know, maybe they throw him in a game that they're down in the playoffs and see if he can shoot him back into it. And for Chicago, Larry Markkinen returned from that pelvic soreness and he's been playing about 25 minutes a game Otto Porter also on a minutes limit right now and on Tuesday long awaited uh, Kobe White is going to start at point guard Thomas Sadoransky will move to the bench Zach Levine not going to be back yet but the Bulls might actually have their five most important players all on the floor at once Porter is still coming off the bench maybe we'll see whether whether that changes he said he's not concerned about starting right now he's just trying to continue to string some games together and be healthy uh let's talk uh toronto and utah here first yeah so the the raptors were still missing some of their important players marcus old didn't play due to that bad be it being on a back-to-back after his hamstring return fred van vliet and then they lost eastern conference player of the week norman powell just two minutes in the game he had this rough collision with og ananobi it was kind of back they, they they kind of ran into each other and ananobi is is a bigger person and also powell landed awkwardly and what was one of the things that was so weird about it was i was watching live was you knew something bad like you knew something happened but you couldn't really figure out what it was whether it was back abdomen knee and it ended up being uh, i believe it was is being reported as an ankle sprain for norm powell he did not return but they were still able to persevere to a 101 92 win in salt lake city on the tail end of a back-to-back so patrick mccaw played 43 minutes off the bench in the absence of Powell, they just needed someone else to play some minutes at shooting guard. Matt Thomas was about all they had. Uh, and I guess, you know, McCaw was who they wanted rather than Terrence Davis. 
and Davis really struggled. He was negative 15 in six minutes as Utah was able to get back into it with their bench unit with Mike Conley running the show, Tony Bradley at center, Ingles, the minivan, Jordan Clarkson, that group looked pretty good against the Toronto backups. Well, and that was a parallel to their game against the Kings where, from what I recall, Toronto's backups hemorrhaged points then too, but the starters were good enough that they ended up winning that one close. Yeah, I mean, and uh, so both Chris Boucher and Terrence Davis came in together, played six minutes, and both of them were negative 15 uh, and uh, were not asked to return by Nick Nurse. And so that's that led to McCaw starting the second half. And play. if he didn't play the whole second half, it was almost all of it. And he was well, plus 21 as well. He was not bad. Something I wanted to bring up was we talk a lot about how rim protectors, they, sure, they can block shots and rebound and do do a lot of other things. But one of the, one of the things... And Gobert is a great example of this. We talk about his deterrence. And something I thought was so interesting is, you know, a game involving the Utah Jazz, you think you're going to see, you know, you see those teams that have fewer shots at the rim and more shots in floater range or whatever. The Jazz, the Jazz offense had 20 shots at the rim and then had 18 floaters in this game. Yeah, and they didn't make them. Nope. And Serge Ibaka was a huge part of that. They went with Hollis Jefferson at center some as well, but it really, to me, Ibaka, especially late as, and OG Ananobi had a huge block on Rudy Gobert late as well as Utah was down three with a, about a minute left. Uh, that could have brought him within one. But, I mean, they just really, in the fourth quarter, had trouble scoring around Ibaka. And Ibaka was fantastic in the playoffs last year, protecting the rim as well, both in that Milwaukee series and in the Golden State series. I mean, he's still a really good center and largely has stayed healthy. You know, I know he's he's, uh, 30 years old and there's speculation that, you know, that was not accurate, that he's actually older than that. But, and it seemed like he had really gone downhill, you know, in the middle part of the decade, but he's retained a lot of his value here. And if he is older than 30, it hasn't mattered because he's still been a very solid starting center. He's got some stretch ability as well. He's always going to be a little stiff out there. But I'm uh, was very impressed by him tonight. And Utah, I mean, and that's generally Toronto's defense. They're kind of like a mini Bucks. They are pretty good at walling off the paint. They do allow more shots in the paint, but they allow a low percentage there. And then they also give up a ton of threes. Not quite as many as the Bucks, but still many. And Utah is maybe the best spot-up shooting team in the NBA. And you could argue maybe even that they should have taken more threes like that Gobert play at the end. He had Royce O'Neal wide open in the corner to tie the game and he instead tried to dunk it on uh, Ananobi. He was, Gobert seemed to be really upset with some calls. He, he was not making the absolute best decisions out there towards the end and, and uh, he got blocked by Ananobi and that was basically the game with a minute left as Toronto went back and, uh, and iced it on the other end. How'd you feel about Utah's defense on Siakam? I mean, for years now, it feels like the old bugaboo has been those dominant forwards that the, that the Jazz have, they have some trouble with those guys and Siakam did have 27 on 21 shooting possession. Yeah, and he also was really driving a lot of the offense late yeah. uh, out of the post forcing double teams they, they got some open threes as well and no I thought uh, Siakam in his 39 minutes was fantastic and they uh, Utah has been playing this roulette on the perimeter throughout the season and this time at the very end Bogdanovich actually went out they brought Royce O'Neal back in for defense but for most of crunch time O'Neal was out it was Conley Mitchell Ingles and Bogdanovich and there aren't great candidates in that group to guard Pascal Siakam and 
they were forced to double team and then Toronto made him play I mean this was definitely an offensive loss for the Jazz shooting 43% on twos but that down the end they really struggled to get a stop and uh, I thought Siakam was really good they in that Kings game they went to Siakam being screened for by Lowry to get mismatches this time it was more Siakam in the post uh, and Lowry I mean what this guy is completely insane he played 43 minutes on the second night of a back-to-back with uh Powell being out no Van Vliet they don't have another backup point guard even available you know McCaw's kind of the backup point guard and he hit just a ridiculous three-pointer with the shot clock expiring that that uh was huge in Toronto pulling away from an 85-85 tie midway through the fourth quarter well, and his activity and passing lanes I thought really made a difference yeah. at moments in time as well and you know he was he was one of the things that swung that dynamic I mean the possession game in this one was fascinating. I mean, Utah had more live ball steals than they had turnovers. They had 12 steals and 11 turnovers, and then that those were 12 of the 18 that Toronto had. But well, the Raptors... One more thing on the minutes here. Sure. Uh, you know, I was talking to Blake Murphy. The Raptors were in town last Thursday, and I was like, hey, hey man, you enjoying the road trip? Like, you get to kind of get to know these guys outside of the home city. It's always, it's always better on the road. And he's like, they haven't had a single shoot around or practice. And that's basically what they've been doing all year. So that kind of puts into perspective some of the minute totals that these guys are playing where they are really really trying to manage it in every possible way outside of the actual games will that actually work uh we'll see i mean they've definitely had some guys with some muscle injuries and we'll see how much energy they have left when the playoffs come along but with boston struggling to a fourth straight home loss against okc toronto is really in command now for that second seed improbably enough yeah, they, they really are. This, this was another game that they probably wouldn't have been favored in that they won. I mean, to sweep that back-to-back against the Kings and, and the Jazz. And remember that there are two teams in the NBA that have a persistent home court advantage irrespective of their, their own quality at the time, and that is the Denver Nuggets, number one, and the Utah Jazz, number two, the team that plays at the second highest altitude in the NBA. And to, so to, to get that on the tail end of a back-to-back with the injuries is really impressive. But so the other thing I want to bring up was offensive glass. I mean, the, the, the Raptors had 14 offensive offensive rebounds seven of which were by Rondé Hollis Jefferson in just his 22 minutes and this isn't you know this isn't the Jazz team with with Gobert and Favors playing together and also they're they're thinner on the back on the second unit too I mean it's really only Tony Bradley Niang is not the greatest rebounder in the world for a for a backup four so it is it was another reminder of that for me that you know the persistence and and everything else that that can work better against Utah than it has in prior years yeah uh, although I wouldn't blame the Utah bench I mean, they were really, no. uh, you know, Tony Bradley was plus 17 in, in 16 minutes. I thought his pick and roll defense looked pretty good in this one, especially in the second quarter. He had a big block on OG Ananobi, had a nice uh, soft hook shot. I mean, he's definitely looked better this year than I thought he had in him. And, you know, to the point now where Ed Davis is uh, just a total afterthought. I, I don't know. I mean, he had that fracture. He was playing poorly before that. And I don't know if he's just done or, you know, whether he might actually be able to contribute if he had a chance. But I, they feel good enough about what Bradley is giving them. How is he going to look in the playoffs? Uh, I don't know. But, he, you know, he didn't. Like, if you squint hard and you don't look at the numbers, he almost looks like he could be Gobert out there, right? <laughs> if you're not, like, really zooming in. You know, he's a big center. He, he takes up some space in there. Uh, he's an excellent offensive rebounder himself, although he didn't do much in that regard in this game 
Uh, I mean, where he really is not the same guy is, you know, just finishing around the rim, getting up for alley-oops as, you know, say a Derek Favors or or just normal finishing on the pick and roll. But, you know, I thought he's he's grown to be adequate, uh, which is not what I would have thought from him. We were saying they should decline his option. That's looking like uh, they made the right move to pick him up again. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it was also the juxtaposition of doing that and also giving it giving it Davis two guaranteed years. But uh, it looks like having an insurance policy. I mean, granted, you can get a backup center. That's not that big a deal. But yeah, I, it looks a lot better now than it did then. Do you have anything else in this game, or do you want to talk about the the craziness that was the game in, in Atlanta? Yeah, I, I got a couple other things here. Utah with that second unit actually was going to his zone and it was interesting it's somewhat similar to miami now miami is kind of more of a almost a three two look with bam out of bio playing in the center like he's got free reign to roam around it can be a little bit more matchup-y and you know it could be more of a two one two a two three but out of bio can has the ability to move around the jazz were looking more like a two three but they it's similar to miami and that they had the bigger guys up top in the zone and then they had Conley and Clarkson in the corners and so I think teams should try to take advantage of that with more size not even necessarily like you know posting those guys up but just to get a matchup of you know let's say it's Pascal Siakam uh, who was not in the game by the way I mean they went they went to the zone for a reason against Toronto's backups but to just try to get the ball with the pass over your three and your four man who are up top and then you can attack against the smaller guys along the baseline on the zone i think that should kind of be the idea uh, against those you know with miami it's like duncan robinson and Dragic are the two guys along the baseline and so yeah. the, the idea is to prevent the ball from getting there but if you can advance the ball into like a short corner area with the pass you can really make some hay down there um and utah shot 43 percent from two they did take 43 three-point attempts they made 37 percent. that was fine but overall offensive rating 99 in this one donovan Mitchell was one out of 10 on two pointers. He was uh, one of the big culprits in that difficult floater performance the six out of 18 rudy gobert couldn't get going at all he had one dunk he was negative 22 and bogdanovich uh only had five points himself it, it was definitely a, an ugly performance for the jazz uh, their first game back after that 5-0 and road trip against uh mostly the drugs of the east so they did have a nice win against boston and so just uh, again it's been so much yo-yoing among these teams in the middle east between denver utah okc houston all these teams have looked like world beaters at times and then gone on inexplicable losing streaks at other times yeah it'll be worth watching something else this wasn't his best performance since returning but Connolly is looking more like himself since this you know maybe it was yeah. just getting right physically was was really all it took yeah, he led that second unit, as we said. He he also struggled from two, but three of seven from three and had seven assists in 34 minutes, which is a good number of minutes for him. All right, let's take another quick break here and we'll get to this uh, this Atlanta-Charlotte game, which I know you guys are probably thinking, ah, that's not going to be that great. I, I mean, it was pretty enjoyable. I think, I think you're going to like hearing us talk about that one. Yeah, so this one was quite the yarn. 143-138 in overtime. Atlanta led it at one point late in the fourth, 115-106. John Collins was a monster all through this game. At one point was 11 of 11. Then in the, in overtime, spoiled that with a missed layup where he probably got fouled by Bismack Biombo, but then immediately popped off the floor to lay in his own miss. So he's, he's basically 12 of 12 from the field. And that... Uh, 
At one point, he had tied the most number of makes by a Hawk ever without a miss. Uh, Dikembe Mutombo was 11 for 11 at, at one point in the late 90s. So, uh, And Collins finished with 28 points in 46 minutes. Interestingly, did not attempt a three-pointer, and they spent much of this game playing actually with Collins at center down the end. So the matchups uh, down the end and then in the overtimes were really interesting, I thought. They were in the early going, because this was the only game on for the first two and a half quarters. And what I kept on thinking was both these teams are bad at defense, but in very different ways. Like the Hawks <laughs> just didn't, the Hawks just straight up like didn't pay attention. You know, like they would just, they would just lose guys. For oh no man, reason. there is one, one Devante Graham three where Trey Young is guarding him probably, you know, sort of like in the slot on the right side of the floor. And Devante just kind of moves around the arc all the way to the corner. There was something happening on the right side of the floor, but nothing that like directly involved Trey where he needed to help. And then he turns around as the ball is in the air and Devontae Graham's all the way in the left corner. Trey's like 25 feet away from him and Devontae just hits a left corner three. It was it was terrible. Trey also got bailed out a couple of times. They tried to post him up with Cody Martin and Martin went right through him but just missed the layup for a couple of times. Uh, so th- that could have looked really ugly. Yeah, and then, and then on the other side of the floor, John Schumann had, had a video tweet about this. It was something I noticed live that there were some really basic miscommunications with the Hornets defense where they're like running they're they're running a, a Trey Young John Collins pick and roll not exactly an exotic set and PJ Washington switches and Terry Rozier doesn't switch but also doesn't stay with Trey Young he just stands between Trey Young and John Collins Trey Young makes the pass to John Collins and John Collins gets an easy basket it's just like, well, what is this? Like, what, what was going on? And Rozier was having a, a wonderful offensive game early on. I think he had 15 in the first quarter, ended up with 40 on 15 and 26 yeah, from I mean, the field. Yeah, I mean, he was quiet, and then he had a ridiculous run, hit two huge threes late in regulation, had a ridiculous step back to his right to tie the game. Uh, I think that was in the first, at the end of the first overtime. Um, it was a uh, pretty impressive performance for Rozier. I mean, really a career game for him with his shooting 8 of 13 from three well and and the other hornet that had a career at least a professional career game as the broadcast talked about was caleb martin caleb martin had 23 points on eight of ten from the yeah. field five that's, of six that's the martin twin who can shoot cody martin is the the one who martin plays twin defense. Who defense yeah, yeah. And, and caleb martin is getting more tick now uh you know he and, and they closed this game with the martin twins out there basically no pj washington he came in like once uh yeah, he battled a ton of foul trouble early in this game he got two yeah. fou- he got two fouls on john collins in like two and a half minutes yeah and no miles bridges either and we've seen actually uh that game against i think it was san antonio it was also the martin twins closing things out well so and, an, and was- another another reason this game was totally ridiculous Devonte graham i, I it looked to me like he had an ankle injury not a severe one but enough that it was affecting him yeah and- well he he had missed the previous game Right. No, but he also like I think he, I think he, he oh he stepped on he stepped he stepped on John Collins's foot. Yeah, or John Collins stepped on his foot one way or the other. Like he didn't look right to me. I think that was in the second or third quarter. And they still put up a 127 offensive rating. And remember, this is the Hornets. This is not the offensive juggernaut. Though they do have some guys I mean when, when Terry Rozier shoots 8 of 13 from 3, that and and Caleb Martin has his best shooting game of his career too. But I mean, holy crap, were these two teams bad at defense? And that did lead to some really fun highlights. I yeah. mean, uh, you, you didn't think that Cody Zeller uh, following Travion Graham, who shoots oh under thirty percent from three for a, a three-shot foul, was a good idea. That, I mean, that wasn't something I mean, you'd, you'd I, I, I put suggest. Travion Graham on the potential targets for fifteen teams on the the offseason previews a few times. It was not because of his shooting prowess. <laughs> 
Yeah. No, I mean, that, that might be the last time he gets fouled in a three-shot foul in his career. I, I don't know if those teams play again. That would be the ne- the next best chance. But yeah, there were, there were some nice performances. Um, you know, Trey had 16 assists and had some real some real beauty, beauties as well. Some nice ones to John Collins, just like over the defense because there was really no defense. Reddish had a few, had hit a few nice shots. Um, he was 8 of 14 from the field. Also a weird game in that Trey Young had a chance to ice it in regulation. He had oh, yeah, yeah, let's... Uh, can I, can I just go through the sequence there? Sure. Uh, so, oh, there was so much weirdness. <laughs> yeah, so I mentioned Hawks are up nine with like four minutes left. Rozier goes on this crazy run. All of a sudden, they're up by one. Hornets are. Trey Young gets a fast break, finds John Collins for an alley-oop with about 15 seconds left. And Borrego calls timeout and elects to have Devontae Graham bring the ball up and just like run the time down and he ends up going with maybe about eight seconds left drives into john collins picks up a foul lloyd pierce only had one timeout left because the hornets had previously denied the ball and bounced the hawks and they had to take one that they didn't want to take at an earlier point so he couldn't challenge it probably would have lost it but you would think if he wasn't worried about losing the timeout he could have challenged it um then graham hits both free throws hornets up one hawks have five seconds left they get into trey young he's just going to go one-on-one against cody martin who in theory is their best defender and with 1.8 seconds left martin reaches in and just fouls trey young and they're in the bonus just an asinine foul just stay in front of him as best you can don't reach in and trey young hits the first and then bricks the second and it it goes into overtime which was uh was not great for uh either young or the hornets for that matter but well and th- and then there was the weird play at the end of the first overtime when oh this was fantastic yeah so there's not much time left and terry rozier is dr- is driving past past travion graham yeah in a tie game they in a tie game and they both go down as time expires and so you're like okay second overtime you know whatever and and then they originally initially whistle it as a foul on on graham and that the yeah. foul and they were reviewing it to see whether the foul occurred before the end of regulation because obviously once the once the game is once the overtime is over you can't commit a foul and they ruled that it did occur before that but then <laughs> lloyd pierce challenged that ruling in one correctly yeah it was a off-arm push-off from rosier that then caused graham to go down i thought initially that they called graham for he basically like kind of dove on the floor after he got knocked down or tripped and that that he then tripped rosier i thought the contact that happened with rosier was after the buzzer but they said no the the contact was earlier and they put 0.8 left on the clock after which Pierce challenged and said, no, the whole thing started with Rozier hooking Graham. And it was, it was a great call. But then Trey Young missed a floater. He actually got wide open uh, with a one second left. Uh, but I think he got a shot off late and they, they went into double overtime. But finally, the Hawks uh, were able to pull away in the double OT. Well, and, and part of the reason they were able to pull away in double overtime was because of another bad foul on a three-point shooter. This time it was on DeAndre Hunter and, you know, it was it was a late close and it was it was the it was correctly called, you know, I'm not yeah. saying it was They it was did they did the Hornets did the thing that we we're always advocating for you more than me of the Hawks it's a tie game, they're trying to run the time down and they decided to trap them and pressure up and force them to attack early, which Kevin Herter did. He found Hunter in the corner 
Hunter and Hunter took a three with 13 seconds left. I was like, what are you doing? Especially because you don't need a three at that point. And, but then he got fouled, which uh, did you agree with that call, by the way? I did. Uh, Caleb Martin caught him in the, uh, caught him in the forearm. I didn't see it okay. on the first, on the first blush, but he hit him. He hit him pretty cleanly on the forearm. And I don't think he got like ball before that or anything like that would, that would justify the contact. Yeah, so he hits all three free throws, and then Hornets didn't score, and, and Hawks hit hit two more free throws to ice it and, and win it uh, by five. But yeah, that was all. It, it was very interesting at the end. The other thing that I thought was pretty interesting was it was John Collins at center. Hornets were largely playing Bismack Biombo at center, and, but neither center was guarding the other because they wanted to set pick and roll. So they had Collins hiding out on Cody Martin, the one who can't shoot at all but plays a lot of defense and then they had biombo hiding out on cam reddish reddish came off the bench in this one he had had uh, cramps in their previous game but he came off the bench for 40 minutes 22 points 8 of 14 uh had a huge play late where in the first overtime where he cut down the lane when trey young was trapped and got a dunk but he was being guarded by Biombo, couldn't really make him pay other than that, and, and Cody Martin wasn't going to make Collins play either. I thought Collins had some moments defensively. I mean, again, this isn't the greatest opposition in the world, but he actually had some nice verticality plays at the rim, you know, baby steps defensively from him. Um, but neither team really was any good at attacking the switches other than just going one-on-one. In particular, I thought Trey Young, as good of a passer as he is, he missed John Collins slipping to the rim a number of times out of those switches getting behind the defense and Trey just didn't see him. Maybe that's the, the, it's more of a difficult pass for him due to his height. Could be. He had one where he just arced it all the way in, but that was the exception rather than the rule on those types of passes. Uh, all right, we done here? Anything else you want to talk about? No, I, I think that's it for right now. All right, well, we'll be back tomorrow. Going to do power forward rankings is the plan right now as we lead up to the top 10 players in the NBA. Looking forward to that one. So we'll talk to you all tomorrow night. Till then.